0: Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Some years ago in Leadership Journal, John Ross Cranley from England wrote the story of a woman who was traveling and was at the connecting airport where she was waiting for her next flight. She ducked into one of the shops and bought a newspaper, a pack of cookies, went to her waiting area and sat down, opened the newspaper and began to read. As she's reading, she suddenly becomes aware of a rustling sound. She glances out from behind her newspaper and sees that the gentleman who's a seat away is helping himself to her cookies in the seat next to her. She's horrified. Rather shy person, she didn't want to create a scene, so she wasn't sure what to do. Disappeared behind the newspaper again to think about it for a minute, and then decided the best way I can communicate is just to do something. So very visibly, she reached over and took a cookie and ate it and thought, that'll take care of the problem. Well, it was quiet. She thought, good. And then some rustling. She looked out, and he was again going after one of her cookies, This time she was really mad, so this time she immediately took one. They did this two or three times back and forth until finally there was one cookie left. He took it, broke it in two, and pushed one in her direction. She thought, the gall. What? He ate his half and got up and left. She was still steaming there about 10 minutes later when her flight was announced. She got up, grabbed her purse, reached in, got her boarding pass, and found her unopened package of cookies. (laughs) And all of a sudden, all her anger just dissolved into embarrassment. She thought, oh my goodness, how could... She didn't even know what to do with herself. It's easy to make assumptions, isn't it? Assumptions about people, about things, about the way the world ought to be. We drive through a nice neighborhood and see a nice home and think, that must be a happy family. We see someone who's very wealthy and think, they must be satisfied with life. We encounter a very intelligent person and think, they must have a lot of wisdom. We make assumptions. Or what about this one? We see someone who has been involved in church much of their life, church leadership no less, who knows scripture and worship services and all the other realities of religion, and we just immediately say, they don't have anything to learn. they got a lot that they can share. They have much to offer, they have much to say, but not much to learn. Be careful with assumptions. We'll see that in the life of a man today named Zechariah, one of the often overlooked characters of Christmas. Zechariah is a priest. He has spent his life in religion. He's deeply cognizant of all the services, rituals, ceremonial services of the temple. He knows how things work. He no doubt knows the Torah and knows it well. He's knee-deep in the things of God. He certainly doesn't have anything to learn, does he? His story is told in Luke's Gospel, the first chapter. But a bit of historical context may help. At the time of Zechariah, there were 18,000 priests in Judea. They were divided up into 24 divisions. Divisions came in at their appointed time of the year, twice a year, to carry out the services in the temple, which were very involved and very intricate. They would serve their time, and they would go back, and then the next division would come. Well, when a division came, someone was chosen, a priest was chosen, to go into the temple, to the holiness of the temple itself, to offer incense before God and to intercede with God on behalf of the people. It was a singular experience. Only once in a lifetime did a priest have that opportunity. A list was kept of those who had not served, and the next person to serve was chosen from that list by lots. Zechariah has been chosen, the honor of a lifetime. He's about to walk into the temple. He doesn't know it, but he's about to have an encounter with the angel of the Lord who will be standing at the right side of the altar of incense, the position of favor, as if to say, Zechariah, I got good news. Zechariah's going to hear it, and he's not going to believe it. So let's read a story again. Luke 1. We start with verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. These were good people. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. Zachariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true in their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zachariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When the time of his service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. You're going to have a child, a son, Zachariah. And the way the original Greek sounds in his response, if pronounced, is like this. Say what? <laughs> in fact, one commentary says the exchange that happens between Zachariah and the angel goes something like this. You're going to have a child. I'm old. I'm Gabriel. My wife's old. I stand in the presence of God. <laughs> Touche. Zechariah doesn't believe it, and with good reason. Now, what's curious is to lay this encounter alongside another one that will happen a few verses later this one with a young maiden named Mary and the angel. Because Mary, too, will have a question for the angel, but receives no censure, no reprimand. Zechariah, on the other hand, has a question for the angel and appears to get punished. What's the difference? The difference may simply be this. Mary's question is how. Zechariah's question is if. The angel says to Mary, this is what's going to happen. And Mary says, wow. Wow. Zechariah hears it and he says, I want a sign to confirm this. That's the language that is used here because I don't really believe it. And so the angel says to Zechariah, Zechariah, go sit in that corner. Don't say anything. Just think about it. I mean, isn't that what it sounds like? He's getting punished. Except that maybe that's not it. Because Zechariah is given a protracted time during his wife's pregnancy to be in silence and solitude before God. He not only can't speak, he can't hear. In a few moments we'll read that when the child is born and they're trying to name him, they're asking Zechariah, what do you want him named? And they have to ask him through sign language. He can't hear them. He can't speak. He is truly secluded in silence and solitude. You see, there come moments when what we need, moments in which what God desires to grow within us, cannot be accomplished through head knowledge. That's not what we need. In fact, God does this often with his servants. I think God does it because he wants to work on us so that he can work through us. Moses, 40 years old. Can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? 40 years old. Moses is told by God, go out to the Sinai and lead sheep for 40 years silenced in solitude. Hagar, stumbling into the wilderness alone and and despondent. She's pregnant with Abraham's child. There seems to be no future for her. And there, in the abandonment of the wilderness, she hears from God, Hagar, my eye is on you. I love you. I have a plan for you. Elijah, that blood and guts prophet, most of the times when important people are introduced to us in scripture priests, prophets, personalities, we're told this was so and so, the son or daughter of so and so of the tribe of this and that of the ten- we get a whole life history briefly of who they are. Elijah is introduced with two words. Now Elijah, boom, center stage. He's there with King Ahab, and he says, I'm going to play show-and-tell with you. And as soon as he's given him his message, he disappears to go play hide-and-seek, to go sit for months, possibly years, in seclusion, silence. And what about John the Baptist, the child of which Zechariah is now hearing, spending possibly years, possibly a decade or more in the wilderness? And what about Paul? That great firebrand for God, the apostle of the heart set free. The apostle who has the piercing light from heaven in his soul, dividing it, opening him before God. He's driven to his knees and to repentance. After that, he says, I went to the desert of Arabia. I didn't want to hear from anyone else. Spending at least three years there, he tells the Galatians in solitude and silence with God. And what about Jesus? Four or five incidents, snippets, snapshots from his birth, one from his adolescence, and then disappears off the radar screen until at 30 years of age, he appears ready for his mission. Zachariah is not being punished. Zachariah is experiencing the reality that God speaks into a person's life when God says, you've got enough up here. That's not what I'm worried about. What I'm worried about is forming you with the ways of my spirit. And the only way that happens is when I have your full, sustained attention." It does something to Zachariah. We go back to Luke 1, nine months later, verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zachariah, the custom at the time, one that was greatly valued. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Now Zechariah is ready to follow the instructions. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Zechariah worries me a bit. Sometimes more than a bit. Because Zachariah is a person like me who has dedicated his life to the things of God. Zachariah, no doubt, has much head knowledge, much awareness, much learning, but it's not enough. Zachariah worries me for you. Because here, a church on the campus of a university, at the heart of a campus where people prioritize learning and understanding and growth and intellectual inquiry and scientific research, where we have so much going on here, can wake up one day and realize my heart is unformed. It's as though God speaks to me and God speaks to you and says there comes a moment when what you need is not more head knowledge, but more formation by my spirit. And that only happens when I have your undivided, sustained attention. Silence. Solitude. So it's Christmas. I love stories. Christmas is a good time for stories. Let me read you one. It's from the book A Touch of Wonder, written by Arthur Gordon, published some 50 years ago. I read it when I was a young adult. It had such an impact on me that when I think of such things, I always remember this story. Arthur Gordon writes his own story. He says, not long ago, I came to one of those bleak periods that many of us encounter from time to time, a sudden drastic dip in the graph of living when everything goes stale and flat. Energy wanes, enthusiasm dies. The effect on my work was frightening. Every morning I would clench my teeth and mutter, today life will take on some of its old meaning. You've got to break through this thing. You've got to. But the barren days went by and the paralysis grew. The time came when I knew I had to have help. The man I turned to was a doctor, not a psychiatrist, a doctor. He was older than I and beneath his surface gruffness lay great wisdom and compassion. I don't know what's wrong, I told him miserably. I just seem to have come to a dead end. Can you help me? I don't know, he said slowly. He made a tent of his fingers and gazed at me thoughtfully for a while. Then abruptly he asked, where were you happiest as a child? As a child, I echoed. At the beach, I suppose. We had a summer cottage there. We all loved it. Are you capable of following instructions for a single day? I think so, I said ready to try anything. All right, here's what I want you to do. He told me to drive to the beach alone the following morning, arriving not later than 9 o'clock. I could take some lunch, but I was not to read, write, listen to the radio, or talk to anyone. In addition, he said, I'll give you a prescription to be taken every three hours. He tore off four prescription blanks, wrote a few words on each, folded them, numbered them, and handed them to me. Take these at 9, 12, 3, and 6. Are you serious? He gave a short bark of a laugh. You won't think I'm joking when you get my bill. The next morning, with little faith, I drove to the beach. It was lonely, all right. A northeaster was blowing, the sea looked gray and angry. I sat in the car the whole day stretching emptily before me. Then I took out the first of the folded strips of paper. On it was written, listen carefully. I stared at the two words. Why? Well, I thought the man must be mad. He had ruled out music and newscasts and human conversations. What else was there? I raised my head, and I did listen. There were no sounds but the steady roar of the sea, the creaking cry of a gull, the drone of some aircraft high overhead. When I got out of the car, a gust of whim slammed the door shut with a sudden clap of sound. Am I supposed, I asked myself, supposed to listen to things like that? I climbed a dune and looked out over the deserted beach. Here the sea bellowed so loudly that all other sounds were lost. And yet I thought suddenly, there must be sounds beneath sounds. The soft rasp of the driving sand. The tiny wind whisperings in the dune grasses. If the listener got close enough to hear them. On an impulse, I ducked down and feeling faintly ridiculous, thrust my head into a clump of sea oats. Here I made a discovery. If you listen intently, there's a fractional moment when everything seems to pause. In that instant of stillness, the racing thoughts halt. For a moment, when you truly listen for something outside yourself, you have to silence the clamorous voices within. The mind rests. I went back to the car and slid behind the wheel. Listen carefully. As I listened again to the deep growl of the sea, I found myself thinking about the immensity of it, the stupendous rhythms of it, the velvet trap it made for the moonlight, the white-fanged fury of its storms. I thought of the lessons it, has taught, it had taught us as children. A certain amount of patience, you can't hurry the tides, A great deal of respect, the sea does not suffer fools gladly, and an awareness of the vast and mysterious interdependence of things, wind and tide and current, calm and squall and hurricane, all combining to determine the paths of the birds above and the fish below, and the cleanness of it all, with every beach swept twice a day by the great broom of the sea." Sitting there, I realized I was thinking of things bigger than myself, and there was relief in that. Even so, the morning passed slowly. The habit of hurling myself at a problem was so strong that I felt lost without it. Once, when I was it, wistfully eyeing the car radio, a line from Carlisle jumped into my head. Silence is the element in which great things fashion themselves. By noon the wind had polished the clouds out of the sky and the sea had a hard, merry sparkle. I unfolded the second prescription, and again I sat there half amused and half exasperated. Three words this time. Try reaching back. Back to what? To the past, obviously. But why when all my worries concern the present and the future? I left the car and started tramping along the dunes. The doctor had sent me to the beach because it was a place of happy memories. Maybe that's what I was supposed to reach for, the wealth of happiness that lay half-forgotten behind me. I found a sheltered place and lay down on the sun-warmed sand. When I tried to peer into the well of the past, the recollections that came to the surface were happy, but not very clear. So I decided to experiment, to work on these vague impressions as a painter would, retouching the colors, strengthening the outlines. I would choose specific incidents and recapture as many details as possible. I would visualize people with complete dress and gestures. I would listen, carefully, for the exact sound of their voices and the echo of their laughter. The tide was ebbing now, but there was still thunder in the surf, so I chose to go back across the years to the last fishing trip I made with my younger brother, who had died in the Pacific during World War II. I found that if I closed my eyes and really tried, I could see him with amazing vividness, even the humor and eagerness in his eyes on that far off morning. In fact, I could see it all, the ivory scimitar of the beach where we were fishing, the eastern sky smeared with sunrise, the great rollers creaming in stately and slow. I could feel the backwash swirly warm around my knees, see the sudden arc of my brother's back as he struck a fish, hear his exultant yell. Piece by piece, I rebuilt it, clear and unchanged under the transparent varnish of time. Then it was gone. I set up slowly. Try reaching back. Happy people were usually confident, self-assured people. If then you could deliberately reach back and touch happiness, might there not be released little flashes of power, tiny sources of strength, The second period of the day went more quickly. As the sun began its long slant down the sky, my mind ranged eagerly through the past, reliving some episodes, uncovering others that had been almost forgotten. For example, when I was around 13 and my brother around 10, father had promised to take us to the circus. But at lunchtime, there was a phone call. Some urgent business required his attention downtown. We braced ourselves for the disappointment. Then we heard him say, no, I won't be down. It'll have to wait. When he came back to the table, mother smiled. The circus keeps coming back, you know. And he said, yeah, but childhood doesn't. Across all the years, I remembered this and knew from the sudden glow of warmth that no kindness, is ever truly wasted or ever completely lost. By three o'clock, the tide was out. The sound of the waves was only a rhythmic whisper like a giant breathing. I stayed in my sandy nest feeling relaxed and content and a little complacent. The doctor's prescriptions, I thought, were easy to take. But I was not prepared for the next one. This time, the three words were not a gentle suggestion. They sounded more like a command. Re-examine your motives. My first reaction was defensive. There's nothing wrong with my motives. I said to myself, I want to be successful. Who doesn't? I want a certain amount of recognition, but so does everybody. I want more security than I've got, and why not? Maybe, said a small voice. Those motives aren't good enough. Maybe that's the reason the wheels have stopped going round. I picked up a handful of sand and let it strain through my fingers. In the past, whenever my work went well, there had always been something spontaneous about it, something uncontrived, something free. Lately, it had been calculated, competent, and dead. Why? Why? because I'd been looking past the job itself to the rewards I hoped it would bring. The work had ceased to be an end in itself and had become merely a means to make money, pay bills, the sense of giving something, of helping people, of making contribution had been lost in a frantic clutch at security. In a flash of certainty I saw that if one's motives are wrong nothing can be right. It makes no difference whether you're a mail carrier, or a hairdresser, an insurance salesman, a housewife, whatever. As long as you are serving others, you do the job well. When you are concerned only with helping yourself, you do it less well. A law as inexorable as gravity. For a long time I sat there. Far out on the bar, I heard the murmur of the surf change to a hollow roar as the tide turned. Behind me, the spears of light were almost horizontal. My time at the beach had almost run out, and I felt a grudging admiration for the doctor and the prescriptions he had so casually and cunningly connived. I saw now that in them was a therapeutic progression that might well be of value to anyone facing difficulty. Listen carefully. To calm the frantic mind, slow it down, shift the focus from inner problems to outer things. Try reaching back since the human mind can hold but one idea at a time. You blot out present worries when you touch the happiness of the past. Reexamine your motives. This was the hard core of the so-called treatment. The need, the challenge to reapprise, to bring one's motives into alignment with one's capabilities and conscience. But the mind must be clear and receptive to do this. Hence the six hours of quiet that went before. The western sky was a blaze of crimson as I took out the last slip of paper. Six words this time. I walked slowly out on the beach. A few yards below high-water mark, I stopped and read the words again. Write your worries in the sand. I let the paper blow away, reached down and picked up a fragment of shell. Kneeling there under the vault of the sky, I wrote several words, one above the other. Then I walked away and did not look back. I had written my troubles in the sand, and the tide was coming in. Arthur Gordon doesn't share the name of the doctor. But I've been wondering this week. You suppose it might have been Dr. Zachariah. He knew something about such things. He was formed by the spirit came to understand that at times it's not head knowledge you need, but heart formation. He came to understand that silence and solitude have always been God's ways of forming us. He also knew the experience of what it feels to be forgotten. So, Dr. Zachariah may just be saying to you who feel forgotten, lost in the silence, that if that's you today, that just might be where God does some of his best work this Christmas. So, in the silence, open your heart to his spirit. And his ways. God just might be preparing you. For something great. Gracious God. Give us a listening heart. A humble willingness. And a deep openness. To the work of your spirit. In Jesus name. Amen.